0: Hey, everybody, I'm your host, Eric Mueller, and welcome back to The Eric Mueller Show, the podcast where we explore what makes any successful person's inner clock tick. Are you a healthcare professional? If not, are you still impacted by the delivery of healthcare services? Absolutely. My guest today, Ed Eichhorn, is the president of MediLink Consulting Group, and he's the author of a book called Healing American Healthcare. Now, Ed has worked in healthcare product and service development for many years. He's fundraised for multiple institutions of higher education, and he helped found a successful medical testing company. That company operated for 10 profitable years before being acquired. As a consultant, Ed advised multiple medical societies during the development of Obamacare. He's written editorials on universal healthcare for U.S. News and World Report, Smurkamish.com, and many other online publications. In 2020, Ed started the Healing American Healthcare Coalition, where he publishes a twice-monthly newsletter for members called the Three-Minute Read. This newsletter is designed to keep healthcare professionals, potentially like yourself, informed on important research and industry news. Ed strongly believes that healthcare is a right, not a privilege, and that seeking healthcare should not have the potential to lead to bankruptcy. Together with his co-author, Dr. Michael Hutchinson, Ed has created a universal healthcare plan for the United States that would actually save our country, now wait for it, $1 trillion per year. I hope that those of you working in healthcare especially enjoy this one. Let's head on over to the interview. Uh All right, so welcome back to The Eric Mueller Show, the podcast where we explore what makes any successful person's inner clock tick. Now, where are my healthcare enthusiasts at today? You may work in healthcare, but even if you don't, you're affected by healthcare. It's a big part of everyone's lives. You gotta be healthy, you gotta stay well. Well, my guest today is a successful healthcare executive and entrepreneur who has created a plan to provide quality healthcare for all Americans, while at the same time saving the country $1 trillion a year. Welcome to the show, Ed Eichhorn.
1: Thanks, sir. Great to be with you today.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate you being on. It's an absolute pleasure. And Ed, so starting off here, you have experience as both a healthcare executive and you're an entrepreneur. So on this podcast, I've interviewed some CEOs, some founders, people that have you know, more of that executive experience, but then also those that have started their own thing. And you kind of blend both those together, which I think is really cool. Would you share how you generate new ideas? If, if we have someone listening that has aspirations to do something entrepreneurially.
1: Well, sure. You know, in my experience, it has to do with passion. What are you passionate about and and what are you observing? What problems do you see that you can address and, and perhaps solve or, or make better for a uh, uh, part of the population or the people that you know, or for yourself. And when you experience, uh, the problem solving that goes along with your passion for an idea, that's where success comes from. Because when you're passionate about something, you are willing to spend the time and the effort to try to make that a reality. And, um, you know, you also learn a great deal if you're passionate about something and you fail a little bit, because that helps you to uh, learn what the boundaries are for you to be successful the next time you have a great idea related to things that you really care about.
0: Now, did you always know that you wanted to do entrepreneurial things? or I know, at least in my experience, Ed, it wasn't really something that was always there. It started to come on a little bit slowly later on. But then I fully realized that this is definitely a route that I want to pursue and explore more. So I guess, was that a passion for you at a really young age? Or did you find that come a little bit later on in your career?
1: Well, that's a good question. When I graduated from engineering school, Uh, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I took an interview with a large medical company and it sounded really interesting. So I I took a job as a product development engineer at a large company, uh, Beckton Dickinson is its name. and It's been around for many, many years, very successful medical device company. And after I'd been there for uh, about six years, I was selected to work with a consultant to actually do a hospital-based product search. And what that meant was, uh, myself and this other uh, person, we were based in hospitals for almost a year. And we came back to BD and we reported that we found 50 ideas for new products for the company. And the idea of finding new ideas in the hospital setting was exciting. And, um, you know, I thought, gee, this is something I may want to do in the future. I left BD to be the uh, director of uh, research at a kidney dialysis company a year or two after that. And as I got into that process, my uh, colleagues at that company and I decided it was time to start our own business to provide better services for dialysis patients. And that began my real applied interest in entrepreneurial activity. We started a company with just four of us. Within uh, a few years, we had 120 employees and we were providing physiological testing in 38 states. Eventually, we sold that company to a large uh, nephrology company. But um, doing that hospital product search and looking at the needs for new products that people had really stimulated me to think about what can I do to be a help to this industry? And how do I do this if I need to do it entrepreneurially? And that's what led to our business uh, that was based on providing physical testing services for dialysis patients around the country.
0: Yeah. Well, and and also like, I mean, you kind of shared a little bit of the, of the the way that you discovered that there was a problem that needed to be solved. You could see mm-hmm. in your own mm-hmm. space where improvements need to be made. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that that your mind goes to right now? So we're obviously, we're coming towards hopefully the end of a pandemic in, in 2022 mm-hmm. right now, in early 22. Is there anything that you think, you know, might be the next big thing on the horizon, whether that's in healthcare or just, you know, in America as a whole? Is there any type of entrepreneurial type type seed that you might, be able to plant for someone listening if they have, you know, maybe, maybe they have expertise in an industry that that is totally unrelated to healthcare, but you know, it still relates to to the American public.
1: Well, you know, um, I think it's a good idea to look at the industry you're in or the business practice you're in, and to look at how the pandemic has affected your business over the last couple of years, and what solutions can you offer or new ideas can you offer to prevent your business from being um, adversely affected uh, by a, a future pandemic because our our healthcare, um, public health people tell us all the time that there will be more pandemics. And there have been pandemics in the past that we escaped. I mean, we, we didn't have the Ebola uh, pandemic here. The swine flu uh, really didn't work out to be as uh, horrible as it could have been uh, like this pandemic has been. You know, for example, um, One of the problems of the pandemic as it began was uh, the supplies that were needed to protect us like masks and gowns in the hospital industry and and gloves and things like that were all made uh, in China and other places on the Pacific Rim. So those products started to go to the highest bidder or just weren't available because they were needed in their home countries. So um, strategically required products for healthcare um, in the time of a crisis should be made in the United States. And if you're in that supply chain and you have the drive to do that or uh, thoughts about how to make that work, that's an interesting area to be working on because there's a lot of uh, thought and interest about how do we protect uh, our need for supplies in in the event of another emergency. And I'm sure there are a number of businesses uh, uh, that could use um, some additional help. For example, it is well known that ultraviolet light uh, kills viruses, but it's not a good thing for you to see or be around. But if you could figure out how to put ultraviolet light in the air handling system in a restaurant, <laughs> you can make it very easy for people to actually go back and enjoy um, uh, dining out uh, inside, as opposed to perhaps having to spread out or or be outside. So, I mean, I'm sure if you think about the many industries and businesses that have been affected by the pandemic. There are a lot of potential uh, ideas and solutions uh, that could develop new businesses, new opportunities, and could actually, you know, create a better uh, economic environment uh, for the future of our country.
0: That's perfect, Ed. I appreciate you sharing that because I think it's, you know, it's challenging if you if you're just starting off on your entrepreneurial journey, and you know, like myself, I've I've learned from all these cool individuals like yourself about you know, how they think and, and what they've found to be successful in their journeys to, to think in those ways. But it, it's challenging. I mean, if you, obviously you want to think of things that affect you personally, because you're in that, you know, fight, so to speak. So if you're working in, you know, healthcare, if you're a physician, you know, on a day to day, what affects you and what doesn't. So it's, it's right in sure. front of you. Um, but it's still, it doesn't, doesn't mean that it's easy to have that idea come to you. So you really, I, I mean, you got to put that work in, so to speak, and you didn't have that that happen immediately. It was still it was still a process for you.
1: That's correct. Um, you know, I, I was very happy to be developing products that uh, the market required when I first started my career, um, and I was learning how to how do you make these things? Uh, how do you how do you make a medical device, and how how hard is it to do that? Things of that nature, and that was a good you know. Um, Every day that we go to work, we we can learn something if we want to pay attention to what we're doing, and and, and sometimes the learning is uh, at such a slow rate. You all of a sudden realize after a year or two of all the things you've actually learned that you can use as an entrepreneur or as a professional or whatever it is you want, you want to do in your in your business life. And you know, I I still have a, a lessons uh, all the time uh, that help me to uh, choose the next thing we're going to do and, and how we're going to do it, and. Uh, You know, I'm fortunate that I have a small team of uh, colleagues in my consulting practice and in my uh, work with the Healing American Healthcare Coalition uh, that uh, allow us to be efficient with our time and to produce our our, uh, newsletter or um, project uh, deadlines and other projects that I have going on so that we can, you know, do things in a reasonable way and uh, don't have to work uh, 14 hours a day to do them. You know, you, you have to figure out how to how to. Provide the things you need for your family or yourself while you're also expanding your career. And and it takes some time to learn how to make that balance.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's a great point because that's kind of where my mind goes to with, and I'm sure a lot of you listening feel feel the same way that if you have some of these desires outside of, you know, your your nine to five, your day job right now, you might think, how do I make the time? Maybe you have a family or you're getting married or you're starting, you know, you're maybe you're going back to school to get a further degree in master's or something after you're your professional degree, if you're in healthcare and you might be thinking, how do I balance this? How do I balance all of this? And at the same time, you know, write a book or start a side hustle or do something, you know, related to learning a new skill that can help me as an entrepreneur. So, Ed, I mean, is there any tips that, that you can share as, as being a, a seasoned, you know, experienced individual in the, in this space? Is there any time management tips that you found helpful?
1: Yes. Uh, And one that uh, people don't often think about, Eric, that I I would like to start with is um, there have been studies done over the years. And uh, one of the studies that I I read some years ago that I've always thought about is, uh, do you accomplish more if you're a workaholic than if you work nine to five? Or, you know, if I work uh, normally 10 hours a day or 11 hours a day, do I accomplish more if I work 15 hours a day? And the answer is no. The wow. answer is when you work too many hours, uh, you get fatigued and you do things slower or you do you you take a little bit more time to relax in between. You say, oh, my God, I've been here 15 hours thing and I've accomplished whatever I've accomplished in my my career. I have met two individuals who actually work, uh, you know, very long hours uh, and it's their choice and they're extremely productive all the time. Wow. Uh, so. It's important to realize that um, uh, for most people, you you just can't work uh, every day, 14, 15 hours a day, and actually uh, accomplish more than if you use your time more effectively. You know, if you you are uh, working nine to five someplace and and you're in a professional environment, you have to work a little more once in a while and, and you have that side hustle that you're very interested in, you just have to set aside some time now and then for that side hustle. You know, uh, when I did the research for for my first book in the Healing American Healthcare series, I, I actually uh, had a, uh, some time in my consulting practice that I could dedicate. So I was doing research for the book, three or four hours on average a day. And then when I started writing, I only wrote an hour and a half to two hours a day because there was a fatigue factor. I, I you know... As my wife says, I can write a great business letter, but she wouldn't want to read a novel that I wrote because I'm I'm a very technical guy. So the writing part took me a lot of time. And my co-author and I uh, would write sections and then he would edit the other person's section to try to make them uh, more readable and more, uh, you know, more enjoyable for someone who wanted to learn about healthcare uh, as we did. So I I think the important thing is to um, think about the idea that you might have. That solves a problem you're passionate about, but then figure out how to budget the time you need for your family, for your day job, if you have a day job and for your idea, because working more doesn't make you more productive in every case.
0: That's the, I mean, that's a great point. And I think it's, it's probably tough to hear for, I mean, you might think working longer is just going to make you more productive. So if you wrote four hours a day for your book, you know, you're going to have that output X amount more times than if you wrote the hour or the hour and a half. But Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's, it's pleasant to hear that. That's not the case for you because it, it just makes, I think it makes that balance piece stay so forefront in my mind and hopefully the minds of, of those of you listening now, because you know, Ed, when you started that, that mobile testing business that eventually was sold, you were, you were currently in a director role, you know? So it's like not, it wasn't that you had nothing on your plate. I mean, you, you were, you were managing a lot and you also you know, took the time to methodically and slowly build something on the side that that later became a monetary, you know, sale for you.
1: Yeah. What my partners and I did, one of my partners uh, um, went full-time starting the venture. And uh, uh, two of us started uh, doing things with him on weekends and on the evenings when time permitted. And then when it was time for me to to jump into that business, you know, I I certainly jumped in. And I was working uh, eight or 10 hours a day. And If I had to, um, it was a mobile medical medical testing business. And and when I was doing the testing myself, you know, I would uh, do the testing and then I would spend a lot of time driving from the point A to point B. So my days were longer than eight hours, but the actual work I was doing was in an eight to 10 hour period and driving equipment around and and those kinds of things that were part of the uh, entrepreneurial effort had to be done and, and, and it took a lot of time, but it wasn't a lot of thinking time. You know, I wasn't. Developing the idea, I was working on uh, mechanics of making the idea happen. So uh, the days were longer in the beginning, but as we built the company, it became a more normal job. When we had when we staffed the company in a way that allowed us to provide services all over the country,
0: right, right. And and I want to get to so you mentioned earlier the Healing American Healthcare Coalition, which you started, but it's also I think I think we should mention the the books that you've authored on that topic. So Healing American Healthcare the topic that I mentioned earlier was to save the country a trillion dollars a year was the plan that, right. that that first book was based on that. Right. And you have a second book that is soon to come out about how the pandemic, you know, where, where do we go in healthcare from here with the pandemic? So if you could mm-hmm. just share and, and knowing that I'll, I'll tag these in the show notes for the audience to to access those those books and where to, where to purchase those, mm-hmm. but just kind of share with us the framework, maybe from that first book, how you created that plan of healthcare and what makes it so unique, you know, and, and I really, I mean, Why hasn't the country started doing it yet? Maybe,
1: Um, you know, healthcare is a very large part of our economy. It's around 19% of the GDP of our economy. And there are lots of interests in healthcare. Uh, We have a very, very strong pharmaceutical industry. We have a very strong insurance industry and um, you know, we are, we are capitalists. I'm a capitalist and, um, they want to make the profit that they need to deliver for themselves or their shareholders. And my concern was, that uh, started me thinking about the book, was generated by uh, healthcare legislation in in, uh, uh, 2017. At that time, uh, the Speaker of the House put forward uh, the Healthcare Advantage Bill, which really was gonna reduce benefits for people on Medicaid, was gonna reduce taxes for some wealthy uh, Americans. It was gonna raise the cost of healthcare for people between 60 and 65. And I thought that was just the wrong path, so that started me on the on the research for the book. And essentially, uh, the plan is um, that you know we looked at the healthcare of many other other nations, and to try to give you a quick two-minute uh, elevator yeah, speech. try to on shrink on it down health. to. <laughs> uh, basically, we think we should copy some of the better parts of the German healthcare system. Every employer in Germany has to provide healthcare. And it's 15% of the employee's salary goes towards that. And the employee can choose between 115 um, insurance companies that are called sickness funds for their health care. In the United States, we believe we should have what we call an all-care plan that employers could choose. We determined it would cost 30% than the current average cost of insurance. And uh, basically, it would create competition for the insurance industry Uh, to be more cost competitive for businesses. It would also uh, reduce the costs for the government for uh, uh, things like uh, pharmaceutical costs. It would reduce bureaucratic costs. In the United States, we spend uh, $230 per person on healthcare bureaucracy. In Japan, they spend $50 a person. So we, we attack those things in our economy with respect to waste and high cost of insurance and poor outcomes. The Commonwealth Fund, every few years, evaluates 11 high-income nations, of which the United States is, of course, one. And routinely, for the last number of years, the U.S. comes out last in access, uh, accessibility of care and outcomes and the equity of care. And we wanted to address those things. So that's what we addressed in that book. And it's available through our website. And it's available on Amazon. And for people who join our healthcare coalition, we give them a free e-copy of our book. Um, so uh, we, we want the idea to get out there. We have sent it to every Congress person who has a committee or is a ranking member on a committee that deals with healthcare, um, you know, and so we, we have uh, done what we could do to get that uh, idea out into the public. And, you know, as people join our coalition, which only costs $12 a year for which you get 26 newsletters, you can get a free copy of that book if you're interested in learning more about it. Uh, Our second book will be out in a couple of weeks, and it's a compilation of all of the articles we've reviewed in our newsletter over the last couple of years. And we we monitor 70 uh, sources on healthcare, and we choose five or six articles every week that we comment on, and we summarize so people can get information quickly, and then they can uh, link on a part of our article to go to the actual full article online if they want to learn a lot more about that topic. So, um, you know that's kind of what
0: we're doing and, and why we're doing it, yeah, Ed, that's that's phenomenal. i think I'm glad that you mentioned the 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 three minute read newsletter, which you were talking about there. So, I think yes. that was something that caught my attention because you designed that to be you know digestible by a busy healthcare professional, so a physician, nurse, right. you know pharmacist, physician's assistant, what have you, um whatever industry, you know whatever type of of you know institution they work in. Sure. they might not feel like they have the amount of time to to digest this type of primary literature that's essential to them being on the top of their practice so I think mm-hmm. that's a great resource and I will tag that in in the show notes as well because I think I think that's a you know incredible resource for anybody that's in healthcare to have so yeah. healing American Healthcare Coalition if you join that dollar a month for for you know for 12 months 12 dollars a year you get the book which probably is 20 bucks. By itself and then you also get this you know newsletter every two weeks that that really can keep you I mean just keep you on the top of, of what's going on
1: yeah, you know when we designed that we actually uh, we tested the newsletter you got to be able to read this in three minutes and you can and the idea is to give people you know the uh, healthcare world is changing from a healthcare policy perspective and all of the issues related to the pandemic and discoveries about the pandemic. And we wanted to um, get that information out to you know physicians, nurses, healthcare finance people, people that manage healthcare uh, centers or whatever, so that um, they have a grip on what's actually going on every couple of weeks. And um, in our second book, uh, which is Healing American Healthcare as the title, which is kind of our brand, uh, and the subtitle is uh, Lessons Learned from the Pandemic, and it goes through uh, all the lessons learned for the first 18 months of the pandemic. And probably there'll be a book three that uh, looks at the next uh, 18 months as the hopefully the pandemic is something we see in our rearview mirror at that time. So, uh, yeah, that's where we are.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, the, kind of where my mind goes with all of this is just the the slow moving nature of, of government and healthcare care in, in any country, but specifically the U.S. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, if you have if you're thinking and you're listening right now and you have just an insane idea that you know, like Ed does to change something that is managed by the U.S. government. You can present that idea and it, it may take effect, but it, it may it may take forever that for them to implement that. I think it's just it's, it's crazy to me to think that, you know, we, we really should be looking at like Germany or other countries that are doing healthcare better. It's like, why are we not what, you know, you present them in this idea. Why are they not acting on it? I mean, is there is there just certain is there certain red tape that needs to be or I mean, what what is the barrier add to this plan being implemented to to help save Americans money and provide better health care?
1: Well, you know, again, it's uh, the challenge of the uh, of the interest in, in, in play here. Um, the pharmaceutical industry has been studied by a number of people at Harvard and other places. And, and generally. We pay two and a half times what other nations in the uh, Organization for Economic and Cooperative Development of the United Nations, the 37 uh, uh, democracies that are in that organization. And we pay two and a half times more for medications than they do. uh, And 60% of them come from companies based in the United States. And uh, the reason for that is other nations uh, have different methods by which they negotiate drug prices with drug companies. We don't negotiate drug prices in the United States. In fact, in Medicare, when the, when um, the part, I think it's part D of Medicare is the pharmaceutical part. When that was negotiated, um, you know, early in this century, um, it was agreed that uh, they would pay a list price for drugs uh, under part D. Now, Medicare Advantage plans, which uh, is part C that uh, Medicare beneficiaries can sign up for, they do negotiate. But if Medicare would negotiate, they could save $80 billion a year on drugs uh, alone. Um, If we could um, improve the um, coding system for uh, services and set uh, price structures uh, that insurance companies can live with, we can reduce the cost of billing. I mean it's outrageous that we spend five times what Japan spends on medical billing. And and it's wrong 30% of the time. So, you know, the complexity is what we want to reduce there. We also want to make uh, Let Doctors Be Doctors part of our book. You know, um, pre-authorization is something that physicians and patients deal with for uh, MRI and CT type studies, expensive studies. The insurance company uh, approves whether or not the doctor can order what you need. Well, that doesn't use modern technology. And that sometimes those things are approved more than 90% of the time. And it takes time. So if the doctor says you need a CT right now, he could uh, order that directly if you're a, a straight Medicare patient. But everyone else, they got to get a pre-authorization. We think the doctor should be able to practice medicine, order whatever he wants, and the insurance company should monitor his utilization rate and go back to the doctor. Dr. Eric, you're ordering five times more MRIs than other nephrologists. Why are you doing that? And find out what his ordering pattern is about, and and then restrict him on the backside as opposed to restricting him in the practice, you know. Doctors spend three to four hours a week just in talking to insurance companies. They shouldn't have to do that. So we're talking about things like that now. Making doctors doctors is more important here in the pandemic because a number of doctors have left medicine. As we were going into the pandemic, 35 percent of the doctors were over 55 years old. So when you put a lot more pressure on them in the pandemic, maybe they decided to retire. So you know we need to deal with the short uh, shortages in staffing of physicians and nurses and pharmacists and everyone else who's in healthcare. Who's trying to step away from it because of the com- the complexity of actually getting paid for the services you provide? So you know those are the kinds of things that are part of the health plan, and it would save the government about three hundred eighty billion dollars a year, and the rest of the savings goes to companies. Uh, the net savings for insurance in a competitive insurance market, with uh, our plan, would be about one hundred and seventy-five billion dollars a year across all industries. So you know that kind of savings would. Uh, create, you know, economic opportunities to improve businesses, to start businesses and and to invest in business. So, um, you know, we think there's a, a great demand for this, but there are those um, interests like, you know, well-established insurance companies and a, a, a tremendous pharmaceutical industry that would rather not give up their pricing advantages. So I think there's a lot, a lot of pressure here and a lot of potential lobbying, you know, uh, one more statistic I'll give you. Uh, the pharmaceutical industry has 815 lobbyists, okay, across uh, their associations and across the companies. Uh, there's uh, 100 senators and 435 congressmen, and there's 815 lobbyists that pull on them, and of course, uh, state legislatures as well.
0: Yeah, so almost twice as much is, oh, is, is how the math works out there. So that, yeah, I think, so. so in other words, I mean, you have... Kind of going back to an earlier you know point that you had, just the the capitalist mindset, you know it's not that not that being a capitalist is is inherently wrong. I mean, you yourself are are, are doing that. Everybody should be looking out for you know their own future yeah. and financial well-being, but at the same time, it it does create a barrier when it's at that level um, throughout the country, right?
1: Well what we want to do is actually create a little different operating system where uh, capitalistic uh, you know endeavors still continue to compete but they have to compete with uh, you know, other forces that cause them to be more creative in, in how they provide services. So we're not interested in socialized medicine and I don't think companies should be either. If we went to a socialized medical plan, uh, like Medicare for all, uh, mm-hmm. that includes an eight and a half percent tax uh, per capita tax for every employee that you have. So if the costs go up next year because of some other problem, then you're uh, not able to control your medical costs because they went up. But if we have a competitive system with uh, uh, the all-care plan that's uh, based on aspects of Medicare as a basic plan, uh, you can choose whatever plan you want as a company. You could be self-insured. You can use private insurance. You can use all-care. You can use all-care with uh, insurance-based wraparound plans for more benefits around low-care. And you, uh, insurance would not be a reason why you might stay with a company. You could move to another company if you know every company is going to have health insurance, because some companies have tremendous health insurance and others don't. So if we even the playing field, it actually would improve uh, human resources as well. So it's a far-reaching plan. It takes a lot of time for people to understand it, and you know it's challenging if you have to compete with a different, uh, different market uh, in your you know well-established uh, insurance business. And by doing what I said, we would affect them because 90% of their business is with employers, not with private individuals. Right. You know, and, and um, so so while we believe it's a simple, straightforward plan, as we describe in our book, um, it will take um, some getting used to for the people who uh, would have to compete in these markets, but they'd be able to do it. It would just be a different set of requirements for competition.
0: Right. Right. And Ed, I think this this kind of ties in with with a, a a great piece of the show and really, you know, the Eric Mueller show to, to look at successful individuals, what keeps him driven is, is kind of my my main thread. And a thought that that popped into my head here is when you created that idea and wrote that book. So that mm-hmm. was a success in terms of you had the idea and it's flushed out. It's clearly defined. Mm-hmm. You know, another version of success would be if, the, if that was implemented in the in the U.S. or, you know, in other countries. Mm-hmm. But. My 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 question for you is, is, is how do you define success? Because you really could look at success in many different ways, just on your book and idea alone. So, I mean, some people might look at it and say, it's a huge success because you thought of that idea. And some others might say, well, it's not super successful unless it's implemented. So I, I'm curious, you know, I, it's, it's definitely up for debate, but I think it's a great point for an entrepreneur to know, because like you said earlier, you may think of things that that fail or don't—not that your ideas failed it by any means—but you might start a business if you're an entrepreneur, and, and it doesn't take off like you thought it would, and and it and you do lose money. So I guess Ed, how do you, how do you define success in your life?
1: Well, you know, I, I think um, at this point in my life, success is a stepwise thing. In other words, um, I wanted to study healthcare in a different way from my total work experience in terms of healthcare policy. I invested a lot of time to do that, and I was successful in that effort because I was able to write a book, and the book has gotten five-star reviews. Hmm. So that, that, for me, is a point of success. I am not, um, for me, uh, getting the book, I was successful. And it would be a, a great accomplishment if someone uh, in government would embrace the idea that I've tried to share with them. Uh, and I realized that there are many different pressures on uh, on people in government. Uh, I was a part of my consulting practice. I was a strategic advisor on legislation for uh, medical societies. And I would go to Washington and meet with the legislators. And I realized that they have all kinds of input all the time on the things that they're thinking about. So I just wanted to be a part of um, giving them something to think about because the ultimate result on how healthcare changes in the United States is is going to be uh, what the Congress and the president do together in order to move it forward. And President Biden has improved the subsidies for Obamacare. More people have that uh, coverage than ever before. And the government is embracing uh, efforts to reduce uh, pharmaceutical costs. And uh, I I would be very happy if they can do that. Uh, As I saw the pandemic, coming, I thought, gee, what can we do to help doctors and nurses and healthcare uh, people to be up to date and what's going on? This is changing very rapidly. And, you know, being able to write a newsletter that goes out every two weeks with my colleagues uh, based on the research we continue to do and having it out there and available, I believe is a successful thing uh, because it's available and people can uh, critique it. They can read it. They can do whatever they feel is important with that. And I feel the same way about, uh, you know, the book that we're uh, going to be uh, releasing in the next two weeks. It's there to help uh, information. We have some interest in the library community from the book because they're saying this book is of historical interest. So if someone wants to look at the pandemic 10 years from now, they can read our book and say, oh, that's what they were dealing with in, um, you know, that pandemic. Uh, So, you know. Success can be an instantaneous thing. And if you uh, interview someone in show business uh, who is an instant success, you'll find out they've been working at it for 10 years. Yeah. yeah it suddenly became successful. So um, to some extent, um, <laughs> I believe success is a state of mind. You know, clearly uh, you are successful if you can take pride in what you do, if you're honest about what you do, and you try to reach uh, the goals that you've set for yourself. And um, sometimes you're not going to reason the does that mean you're not successful? Well, could be, or, or maybe you're still successful because every situation is different uh, and uh, predictable,
0: I believe. Yeah. I think that's a great point because you, you also don't want to let someone else determine your success and you don't want to have a label put on you as you are or are not successful based on what someone else thinks. So, I mm-hmm. mean, looking, looking, you know, from from your story, looking at the fact that you created an idea that could save the country that much money. And is that revolutionary to me? I mean, that is hugely successful. Sure. Not, doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. matter if it's implemented, but because there's so many other factors, I mean, you can't, you can't go break down the doors of those legislative people and then just force them to implement. I mean, that's not, that's not what you're going to be able to but do. That,
1: that would, that would never work for sure. Um, uh, you know, but it is what it is. And, and, uh, we keep on plugging away and, and, um, we enjoy what we're doing. We enjoy the conversations we have with people uh about this. You know, I, I was I was speaking with someone about, it he said, a trillion dollars a year. What if you're off? I said, okay, suppose I'm off 25%. We only save $750 billion a year. Is that a bad thing? And yeah. You know, I said, well, I, I get the idea now. Okay. Um, so, anyway, um, it's a, a continuing dialogue. And we're happy to have the dialogue. Uh, you know, um, my PR agent, whenever we do something like that, uh, we send it out to 2000 uh, media outlets. And, you know, we get radio interviews and podcast interviews. And, uh, and um, you know, if you can talk to people about the ideas you have, uh, maybe they'll resonate with some people. And, and that's what you want in a democracy. I mean, it, we're not dictatorial. It's uh, you know, it's a debate that should end up at the best place for everyone.
0: Right. And, and Ed, to, to further, you know, dive into this, the success piece quick and to be respectful of your time, I know we'll get you, get you off here pretty soon. But so you define success as that stepwise approach where you're, you're working at it day in and day out and, and slowly moving the needle towards your goal. Um, and you mm-hmm. shared that earlier with the time management piece. If if you can just kind of figure out how to effectively move that direction every day, you know, you're going to be you're going to be chasing your success.
1: But what keeps you? This is a marathon, not a sprint.
0: Yes, exactly, exactly. And coming from a runner's background, that that holds particularly true. But if you were to, if you were to share, what are are a few driving forces that just keep your inner clock ticking towards that success on a daily basis? You know, what gets you out of bed in the morning? What keeps you pursuing the success that you've had? You
1: know, it's uh, the evolving passion about ideas uh, for me. I mean, you know. you know, I, I believe I heard in one of your podcasts that a CEO said he woke up in the middle of the night and figured out how to name his company because he'd been thinking about it while he was arrested. And I think that happens to everyone who is thinking about things they're passionate about, where they'd like to make a change that can, uh, you know, create the business for themselves or uh, solve problems for others. Uh, so. I, I think passionate about the ideas that you have as you learn something and your idea changes a little bit. If you have passion about that, then you really want to think about it and and make it happen. Um, You know, that's really important. That's for me. That's the goal. Uh, you You know, get up. In the morning and start my day. Think about what has to be done. Address the issues. Try to uh, have some creative time. And if there are problems that have to be addressed, try to think about them as opportunities instead of problems. So you can get through them and get to bed. Exactly. Uh, those things always exist for all of us.
0: Yep, that's exactly right. Well, Ed, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Everybody that's that's listening, whether you're in healthcare or not, I think subscribing to the Healing American Healthcare Coalition would would benefit you. You know, the dollar a month that's that's nothing. Um, so, so definitely you can, you can take, take advantage of having that newsletter sent to you every two weeks and I'll, I'll tag the books for, for Ed as well. So if you're interested in reading those, the one that comes out in two weeks, um, when I update it, when it comes out, I'll, I'll include it on there. So you'll still be able to access it. But Ed, if someone wants to reach out to you and, and learn more or connect with you personally, what would be your preferred method of contact? Are you on social media or email or what would be best?
1: I'm on LinkedIn as Edward Icorn. Um, you can get to me through the healingamericanhealthcare.org website um, at info at uh, you know, health, uh, healingamericanhealthcare.org. Or you you can email me at uh, ed at medilinkgroup.com, M-E-D-I-L-I-N-K group.com, either by email or uh, through the website or on LinkedIn, um, you know, any of those ways. I'm happy to reach out to anyone.
0: Perfect. Well at ICorn, thank you so much for being on the Eric Mueller show. We appreciate your insights. We'll wait for that day that that the US uh, government implements your plan and we'll be able to we'll be able to cheers a success toast to you. So thanks for being on and, and take care.
1: Thanks a lot, Eric. It was great to be with you.
0: Good appreciate luck. it, sir. Thank you.